Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. As it's over two years since we launched FuturePod, we thought it would be interesting to check in with our previous guests and see how their work and their thinking may have changed since we last spoke to them. So we've created a new FuturePod series called The Reinterviews. Today, we are re-interviewing Richard Slaughter. We originally interviewed Richard in podcast 12 called Waking Up and My Inquiry into Depth. In that podcast, Richard tells us where it all began, what inspired him to join the community, and what motivates him to keep striving to educate and promote futures thinking more broadly. And we also spoke to Richard in episode 74 when Richard with Tom Lombardo did the special issue of Remembering Wendell Bell. So welcome back to FuturePod, Richard. Thanks, Peter. Good to be here. Great to be talking again. So what new things have you learned since we last spoke and what are you working on now? Well, I think the main thing I can draw out of that is just it emerges from the idea that the years, these years, these times that we're going through are so consequential for what happens down the track for our species and our world. There's an old historical continuity where people think they live at the hinge of history and they're mostly thinking about their own lives beginning and ending at a certain time. But what I'm thinking of here is really the collective story where we've uh, hit global limits, we've crossed them, and uh, some groups of people are struggling to get uh, other groups to pay attention. Mm. This is what partly what that earlier podcast was about. And what's come home to me in the interim really is this isn't something that happens quickly. There seems to be really quite major impediments to changing course, even when we know it's urgent that we do so. So I've been really looking at uh, why are we so slow when we know the need is so imminent and so serious, so systemic? Why are we so slow to change course? That really is the main question that I think um, I've been following for a while. In fact, I'd say I've been looking at trying to understand what goes under the heading of overshoot and collapse futures for over a decade now, Yeah, trying to figure out what that means, going back to some of the other people who have written about it, like Joseph Tainter and many others, just trying to work out just what's going on and how can we find our way through this in a way that makes sense. So it seems to me that it really challenges us, the situation challenges us to just really reflect on what is going on that in these consequential years we are just not coming close to what needs to be done. And the first thing I have to say is that it's obvious that there are a huge number of factors involved, all sorts of issues, social factors, economic factors, structures of power and influence, logics in use as we call those procedures that, that we all use unthinkingly, uh, environmental qualities and constraints. There's a lot of things, but underlying all that, 
seems to me that there are these narratives, these myths and stories that we tell ourselves or that we believe, and the role these have in legitimating and sustaining continuities of thinking and practice. Continuity is very important for societies, and balancing out the continuities with the change has always been an issue. But the more I thought about this, the more it seemed to me that a lot of the stories, a lot of the the myths, a lot of the background thinking continuities, if you want to put them that way, can actually be identified as narratives that have become skewed or out of whack Mm. or no longer particularly helpful. So that's really what I've decided to look at. Yeah, the skewed narratives is an interesting one. Um, It's a term that I notice has been creeping into your writing. Um, Do you want to maybe just explain a bit more about what you mean by a skewed narrative and also maybe give some examples as to what you know, what's an example of a skewed narrative? Yeah, I'll, um, I'll run across a, a few. Uh, there are four that are uppermost in my, in my mind here. And um, I, ma- I must mention that these, all four of these uh, suggestions come, there are a couple of um, source documents that, that people might want to look at. One is an excellent book uh, by Lewis and Maslin called The Human Planet, How We Created the Anthropocene. I picked that up on a a trip to Bristol a few years ago, 2018, and um, I'm so glad I did because it just gave me so much more to think with about this very issue. So that's one source document. The other is the paper I published in Futures last year in 2020 called Farewell Alternative Futures. Both of those pieces uh, contain a lot of the background for what I'm about to say. So for examples, the first one, I want to mention is what I call the triumphalist human story, the view that that the human trajectory has been one of, of triumph and conquering over various limitations. The second one, which is uh, very familiar to most people working in futures, is the the normative practice, the habit, the unthinking habit of short-term thinking, and the sense that that's something adequate and valid and useful. I want to question that for a couple of reasons. Thirdly, there's what I've come to call the great disconnect, which has got to do with humanity's difficulties in relating its life and existence back to the things that that support it and make it possible in the first place. And then one that's become very, very prominent in recent times, the notion of uh, technology as being fundamentally a positive enabler of human intention. And uh, that is something that's in play very much at the present time. Mm. So the triumphalist human story tells us that human evolution is the story of our species emerging from darkness to light, ignorance to reason, from obscurity to mastery of of the physical and biological world. In this view... We like to believe this kind of human exceptionalism. Like We like to believe that uh, the benefits are what matters. And yet we tend to be much less aware of the dependencies and costs over time. Tremendous uh, 
clarity was was um, shed on the subject by Lewis and Masman in their book, where they suggested that some of this could be accounted for under the heading of progress traps. And what they mean by that is that things that were seen as inevitable, useful, progressive, um, supportive of the human enterprise from many thousands of years ago ended up carrying with them severe costs and dependencies that only became clearer over time. They, uh, for example, they used the phrase going back way into the early uh, human prehistory, maybe 50 millennia back, a long way back. They used the phrase the domestication ratchet. And what they meant by that is that the changes that occurred over vast periods of time led to certain consequences and there was no going back. So population increase, hunting and gathering gives way to farming, large-scale populations develop, become dependent on that way of doing things. There's no way to go back to hunting and gathering. And there's a sense of being locked in progressively to a new way of doing things. And that had consequences. For example, the extinction of the megafauna, the large, many of the large animals that inhabited various parts of the world, seems to coincide pretty much with the rise of humanity in that way. This goes on, this process goes on through the, the uh, much later in history and in our time, a few centuries ago, the, uh, the first wave of globalization, how that led to various forms of dominance and, uh, and exploitation of dependent populations. The scientific revolution, with all that gave us clearly on one hand, but on the other, the uh, future was now seemed to be more to do with what humans do. And nature had become a thing, an object. Mm. The Industrial Revolution, again, obvious benefits, but um, the costs of the Industrial Revolution, I think we're closer to it. So when we look back with clarity, we can see what they are and were and are. Fossil fuels, well, we're caught up in that trap right now. Globalization too, if you like, and the expansion of markets, corporate dominance, all that went with that, leading to hyper consumption and what I call also what I call the the um, the great acceleration, which is more or less invisible to most people, I think. Yeah. Leading right up to the IT revolution, which has got its own issues, and then the whole phenomenon of global overshoot. If you start looking at human history in terms of those progress traps, what we got on the one hand, what we valued, and what it cost on the other, being constantly deferred into the into the ever receding future, yeah. a sense of history as not just triumphant but also highly tragic. Are some of the progress traps also things that we had to do in the cultural sphere to manage larger and larger groups? And what I'm thinking of are some of the cultural tropes around uh, race, uh, faith, and ideology as. Th- as ideas to bind and motivate larger numbers of people to, to, to in fact, operate as a larger system. Are, those, are some of those also the kind of traps that we're, 
that we're still working our way through? Absolutely. I mean, the, the classic um, granddaddy of them all is the myth of progress, which says that this, despite the cost, this is good. We've been making progress all this time and life gets better and better. So absolutely, there's a whole sociology to be told, explored and looked at around this uh, very issue. So yes, there's, there's masses of work. It, it, it's endless, as I say, but just to, just to get the key idea, which is all I'm trying to do here, is just to understand that the triumphalist story is just one side of the picture and we somehow prefer to hear that and to, I think it's one of the things that keeps driving the activities that are now compromising our chances of changing course is that we haven't really fully accepted that that's only half the story. Yeah, and the narrative itself gives us this notion of there is no alternative because you've come so far in the story and you've made so many bets on the future that you kind of have to keep going because going back's not possible. And going forward uh, becomes problematic because the systems that uh, everything was predicated on turn out not to be... uh, endlessly resilient and the boundaries are real. You go through boundaries, you cross limits and you're in trouble. It's interesting too from history, Richard, that when you look at society, and this goes back to the days of the Romans and so forth, you found movements where people almost naturally seemed to move back to simpler ways of living (laughs) and couldn't sustain them, but but nevertheless, you know, whether it's whether it's Epicurus or it's Rousseau or it's, you know, the 60s kind of, you know, the, the sort of, you know, we grew up with. But there's been this kind of pattern that as, as society builds the narrative and builds the logic, there are people who step out trying, trying to explore alternatives. I, I won't pretend that I'm a historian here, but if you read Tainter and other observers of previous collapses, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is, again, the classic because that just kept on expanding, going beyond limits, getting fully extended and stretched until it just couldn't be sustained. There were economic issues. There were issues of uh, long-distance communication. There were the the rise of uh, tribes and other entities that contested the worldview of the Romans and so on and so forth. So there are, there are plenty of examples in history of the way that uh, societies overreached. And yet the odd thing to me is that those stories are barely looked at by anyone except scholars these days. The people who, who are ostensibly guiding and managing, directing uh, large organizations and societies are not really equipped, not, not by a long chalk, to to look at those examples and figure out what they have for the present. And that leads rather neatly into the second point, which is about uh, short-term thinking as an unquestioned norm. If you're embedded within a very short here and now, then you're cut off from history, as you know, and you're also not really taking the future seriously. And in many ways, that understates what humans individually and collectively can do, what they're capable of. And as futurists and foresight practitioners, a lot of our effort has been devoted to really trying to demonstrate how crucial uh, forward thinking, foresight, scenarios, thinking ahead is 
how strategically helpful it is, stitching time, save line, and all that. What I think we've overlooked um, in doing that is the whole issue of deep time. Now, this is something else that's really cropped up in my own thinking since uh, we last spoke on the um, future pod. And that is how the absence of deep time awareness from our contemporary world is one of those things, I think, that makes us seem far more significant, uh, important, if you like, than perhaps is justified. It allows us to overvalue our own existence and to overlook our profound debt. It's an absolutely profound debt to the lineage of life on Earth. And it is, once you start going back, the Earth's formation around 4.5 billion years ago, and how billions of years passed before even the most simple life forms appeared, and then the struggle of life to find a niche on a very um, unwelcoming planet, unwelcoming environment with um, turbulent uh, upheavals, and nothing like the settled world we came to know, you begin to get an appreciation for how ancient the whole thrust of life is. So instead of just thinking about how powerful we are, what rights we have, how nature is a natural world, the whole natural world is a, a kind of diverse resource for our immediate use, you begin to see that we belong to a community, not just the community of life as it has come down to us, but in fact to the whole lineage that brought us to where we are. And when you start to get into that, you realize it's become far too easy for us to carry on with our normal activities and to literally forget about the other species that themselves have uh, representatives of ancient lineages of life. And therefore, you get this sense of, of human hubris, unmodified by the sense that there is something bigger than us, something more ancient, something worth paying attention to and, and respecting. Is that an ignorance alone, or is there some motivating factors that cause us to stay so short-term and so shallow in time? Well, I, I think there are. The exigencies of everyday life in earlier eras meant paying a lot of time and attention to where you were in the here and now. And our, our whole perceptual system is geared to that. But then as time went by, you know, the old thing about when to plant and when to, when to harvest uh, came into being. So um, I think there's something to that. But it's something that we, we don't think of consciously. It's more like a, a deep kind of vein of influence on our, on our on who we think we are that just doesn't respond to some of those, uh, those deeper, more ancient factors that, that are actually part of how we, how we operate. They're actually in us, in, in the energy units that drive cells of all creatures. The, the, the ancient world is 
is within us. It's part of our of our present. It developed millions of years ago. So it's a, it's really dangerous to to have forgotten that. And I think that leads me to the next point, which is the one of what I call the great disconnect in in thinking that we're above, beyond, masters of nature. We um, have have just lost touch on the whole as a culture with the the very dynamics of the system or systems that make our lives possible in the first place. The fact that there have been people and traditions and attempts to um, to counter that by all sorts of people. There's a uh, native uh, native cultures all over the world didn't operate this way. They they saw the life around them as being central to their own lives. They paid tribute to it. They respected it. And uh, even in even when uh, modern America got going, there were very powerful voices like the American conservationists who saw the point of keeping those connections going. But overall, as time has gone by, the most powerful entities basically proceeded as if those uh, those factors didn't exist. And out of that comes a sense of entitlement. If you're separate from something, you can use it, you can abuse it, you can destroy it. We saw that when a big mining company destroyed some ancient uh, Aboriginal settlements and cave areas over in WA some time ago. They were just after the, the material resource. They weren't the least bit interested in the cultural uh, significance where the native people were connected through the places like that to, to history, to the, to the planet. And two ways that this shows up, this phenomenon, is... Um, one I call shifting baselines. It's not my phrase, but the fact that whatever we're born into, we take on as normal. We don't relate it back to the, to the wider macro change. And so the, the great acceleration in human uh, demand, human impact that happened during the latter part of the 20th century and continues is literally invisible to most people. They might come across some reference to it in uh, education or training, but if you ask, stop any person under, what, 30, 40 on the street and ask them, do you have any idea what the term the great acceleration means? They, I don't think very many people would give you a, a reasonable answer. Is this sense of, of just not understanding what's at stake. I, I wrote a small piece about this for my weblog some time ago, and I used Joseph Wright of Derby's beautiful painting called Experiment with the Air Pump, mm. where he's pictured a scientist and a group of people looking around as a, as a dove is running out of oxygen in this bottle, the air being pumped out. And uh, the kids and some of the girls, the young girls in the picture, can't bear to look. They're looking away. There's a, um, an older guy on the right sitting with his hand on his chin just looking forward. And I read into that something like, what are we doing? What the hell's going on here? Mm. And it's a really powerful picture because you do get a sense of, um, of the disconnect. Science on the one hand so useful, on the other hand leads to this uh, alienation from, from natural process. And that leaves us um, really vulnerable. So in the, uh, in the 70s, as most people know, 
the first limits to growth um, study came out, and it was destroyed. It was so unwelcome. The economists jumped on it, business people jumped on it, politicians jumped on it, and really, even though it came through the uh, MIT and Club of Rome, even though it, it was just the first step, both that fundamental work and all the work based on it that came later is just like a kind of um, unacknowledged sideline that's been repressed and uh, put out of, out of human awareness. So it's been there. It's been available. I see it as a huge gift to humanity, but that gift um, has literally been set aside, which is a, a progress trap in its own right. The Greeks had a term called the curse of Cassandra. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the dilemma of um, being right but not being believed. Mm. That's true. So on to the fourth example of this uh, very sort of rough view of, uh, of skewed narratives. President Biden quite recently was talking about um, the competition with the Chinese and how for him, one way to summarize one of the, one of the goals he has and his government is to, is to win the technology race for the future. That may not be exactly what he said, but it's close. And I saw that as, as a yet another indication that Technology in the U.S. is seen as uh, almost like a transcendent category in which, uh, which is surrounded by opportunity, growth, income, security, power, and it's, in, it's in so embedded in that culture that it has helped to drive all sorts of things, not all of which um, have been uh, beneficial. So in, in the work that I've done on the IT revolution, I picked out two particular aspects of that that I thought needed to be mentioned. One is viewing technology merely as things, as devices, and forgetting that what is embedded in a technology is not just the material form it takes, but this long web of socioeconomic arrangements, worldview values, very specific human interests. These are all hidden, and you have to look with the right in the right way with the right tools in order to see them clearly. So that's one thing: technology as mere stuff. The other is recognizing that there are always winners and losers. Te nothing is good all the time, and technology is often pursued still to this day as being all good. When, when something new comes out. All you hear is about all the good things it does. But in fact, it's ambiguous. And it's, it's a strong tendency to lose sight of the partiality built into technology. One of the great examples is algorithms. It's become so clear from the point of view of many different people that when algorithms are put into practice, they play havoc with certain situations because they're simply not reflecting the diverse world. They reflect a certain view of it as developed by the cultural and human context that underlie its development. So if technology is fundamentally ambiguous, it means immediately that you take more care about what you create and about what you put out there and how you put it out there. And therefore, you just 
don't just throw things on the market, as has been going on for a long time. You run it through all kinds of things, not just internally with the internal dynamics of an organization, but run it through all kinds of tests and trials and um, social impacts. There's lots of ways of doing technology assessment. But you know what? What I find so interesting is that you never hear of it these days. Mm. All you hear is device X, device Y, brand new one, you know, does all these new things, go and buy it. That's basically uh, all it comes down to. Yeah, the Americans used to have an office of technology assessment and it was discontinued under Ronald Reagan in the 80s. It used to have a congressional clearinghouse on the future. We used to have a commission for the future. And there are a few such things scattered around the world in, in different places, but most people wouldn't even know uh, most people in government wouldn't even know they exist. Certainly our government has absolutely no idea about that particular set of um, arrangements and, and how useful they really are, how, how essential. So there is a contradiction. There are many contradictions in the way we look at tech and we overvalue it as a positive enabler. We under Just like with the, the story of human progress, we undervalue, we underregard the things we find difficult or problematic about it. In fact, we pretend on the whole that they're not there. Mm. Now, I want to finish with a couple of quick examples of things that are absolutely contemporary that show this happening in uh, these, these uh, contradictions and these issues with things that are actually going on in the world. One of them is the uh, focus that's currently being um, undertaken to uh, survey the seabed and to find areas where extremely large, heavy industrial machinery can be lowered to the ocean floor in order to detect and pick up what are called polymetallic nodules from the ocean floor. These nodules, I'm not sure if many people realize this, but the minerals that they're made of actually precipitate out of the seawater over millions of years millions of years. And so here we have that same contradiction, the, the here and now view going into a, a zone where very heavy large-scale tech is proposed to mine, gather, scrape in any way they can, remove the stuff from the ocean floor that took millennia to form. And in the process, who knows? Nobody knows because the ocean depths are, are what they are and knowledge about them is incomplete. So it's, it's more of the same. It's a very familiar thing. It's like cutting down forests to make wood chips. It's like so many other examples that we have. And the last one, the one that I've been working on for the last several years, is the IT revolution, which um, has turned sour and dangerous all sorts of reasons, um, but one of which is that the drivers of this tech are the, the internet oligarchs, and their interests are simply about what capital is always about. It's about making more capital. It's about growth, expansion, profit, power, all those hoary old things that have been going on forever. The IT revolution is not about us. It's about us in many ways, but it's not for us. It's for these abstract entities. And uh, 
it has proven to be what it, the more it goes on, the farther it goes, the more problematic it has become. While in the early days of um, of the internet and the early days of what became called known as social media were gave gave rise to a certain amount of optimism about new things that were possible. There was very little attention paid to the, to the costs and the the um, dependencies and the way that would un, unravel through cultures. And we now can see that, uh, unfortunately, many so-called social media have become little more than rivers of, of distraction, rivers of poison, some people think, in uh, working through and dissolving, like acid, dissolving some of the very structures and processes that help societies to cohere, belief in truth, uh, the authority of science, the, um, the desirability of doing things well for, for, for good, positive reasons, all that sort of stuff. And for a, a real proof, the proof here is really in what's happened um, in China, where these, uh, these systems are applied within a powerful top-down state power situation where there is simply no interest in the kind of uh, human values that much of the rest of the world shares and therefore no limits. So this tech has run and run to the point where we're looking at a worked example of a high-tech dystopia right here, right in the world, right now. Mm. And that is not good for anyone. It just extinguishes the human spirit, I suppose, to put it in a nutshell. The great authority on this is uh, Shoshana Zuboff in her book, The um, Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And I have a lot of time for her and the book because you, in order to, to know where you are, you have to know how things got to how they are. And she tells the story very clearly. And uh, that, make, that makes it so much... Uh, it brings within the realm of possibility how you can begin to understand and therefore find our bearings and, and deal with this stuff. And I think that's that's really where we're at with these narratives. The takeaway sort of payoff point is that if we understand what's happening, if we can locate you know those entities, understand what they're doing, understanding what's at stake is a very good first step. And for me, that involves really paying attention to those values and worldviews. It uh, means disregarding so much of the uh, diversionary material that comes up and focusing on high-quality insight and really going for clarity. Mm. I've always believed that clarity precedes effective action. That leads to motivation, personal empowerment, Joanna Macy did all this years ago with despair and personal power in the nuclear age. Those principles still apply. Almost the last word is none of this we can do on our own. It's all always going to be collective, so aligning with others who are working towards similar ends. And just bearing in mind that courage and humility go hand in hand. You know, we have to be courageous in what we're trying to do to, to, to nudge these crazy distorted narratives away from their routine, regular slots and paths and channels have feel strength and ability to do that without going over into the kind of hubris that um, gets us into trouble. 
I always like to remember Brian Aldiss's classic definition of science fiction. I've said it before, but it's hubris clobbered by nemesis. <laughs> That's about as concise as you can get, but it's accurate. We don't need the hubris. There are a lot of other human qualities that we need, but the hubris has got us into a lot of trouble. Mm. So in the last couple of years, this is what I've been doing. Just finished a book on um, deleting dystopia about the IT revolution, but we can maybe talk about that another time. Yeah, well, you are going to come back. In terms of aiding our clarity, you are going to come back a bit later and do another half of this re-interview on the technological dystopia that you've been spending a lot of time with, aren't you? Absolutely. Well, on that note, again, thank you for finding some time to come back and reconnect with the FuturePod community. I do appreciate it. We will get this one out and then follow up with another one, Richard. Sounds good, Peter. You're doing a great job. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.